Welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and we hope you are encouraged by today's message. We have the honor and the privilege tonight to hear from uh, an amazing man of God. He is a part of our family and he and his wife are doing an incredible job uh, leading an incredible community and congregation in the metro D.C. area. And so I want us to put our hands together and welcome to this stage, Pastor Charlie Dawes as he comes. Amen. Man, I, I love just getting a chance. Uh, what, what Pastor Tim said is, is so true. Man, I love being with family. Uh, I, love, I love getting a chance to laugh and, and pray, and we're so grateful to be part of just an incredible family that has incredible leadership, has incredible uh, oversight pouring into us. Uh, it was great seeing Pastor Stovall, great being with Pastor Kerry, but can I tell you, uh, last night, uh, Pastor Tim saved my life, like saved my life. We were outside, and it was in the woods, and by my makeup, you don't know this, but I, I'm not so woodsy. I'm not so woodsy. And we were sitting there and we were talking. And he's like, hey, don't move. And there was a spider the size of my face. It might have been a little smaller, but it felt in that moment, it, it felt like the size of a watermelon. It, it, it got even larger now that I'm telling the story. It was, a, it was a person. It actually walked up and had a gun. And it was very awkward. And, uh, but Pastor Tim saved my life. And so um, we're, we're going to be united forever. Uh, I'm so grateful. Are you guys grateful for Pastor Tim, Pastor Jen? Incredible world-class leaders and uh, becoming a dear, dear friend to me. And I'm just so grateful to be here. Uh, my family's not with me, but they are watching uh, online. And so uh, I want to show you a picture of my family so you can kind of see uh, the, the crew and the tribe. There it is. There's uh, Team Dawes. Uh, my, my daughter, Haley, all the way to the, to the right. Uh, I got Caden, who just turned 10, going on 25 years old. Um, and then Declan is our youngest son. Uh, who, who are the, who's the youngest sibling in the room? How, who in the room's the youngest sibling? Yeah, of course. Always the youngest sibling does that. Woo! Yeah. Um, but you can't tell Declan nothing. He is his own person, and he's a trip. And usually he gives, like, the thumbs-up symbol. That's kind of his thing. He'll walk around and give you the thumbs-up symbol. And so uh, I love my family. Uh, we love being a part of this great, uh, great family. Uh, and so why don't you grab your Bibles if you have them. Let's go ahead and dive into the Word tonight. Uh, there's no need for us to, to warm up. We can get right into it. Are you good with that? All right. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10. I want to read a, a couple of, of verses here together, and I want to get our mind uh, around what, what the text says and then want to uh, land this with us tonight and, and really truly believe that God, God has something for us. And so here's verse 35 of, of chapter 10. And it says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? If you've got a way to underline in your Bible, write it on your hand, write it on your notes, write that phrase down. What do you want me to do for you? And then they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left when you come into your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism 
in which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now keep all that in mind. And I want you to take your eyes and look down to verse 46. It says, and then they, the disciples came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, uh, there was a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And then throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, you see that question again, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's bow our heads and our hearts for prayer. Father, we love you. And we thank you, God, for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your presence that is in this place. We thank you for your spirit, Lord, that breathed this word into existence so many years ago. God, we know that that same spirit that brought inspiration is the same spirit by which we get illumination here in this moment. And so God, give us ears to hear your word, minds to comprehend it, and hearts and lives to be changed by your word. We thank you. We give you all honor. We give you all glory. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I, I love the way the gospel of Luke starts out. If you kind of rewind about 10 chapters and you look at the way in which the text begins, it almost shoots out of a cannon. Over 47 times or so, you have this phrase that's used over and over quickly, right away, immediately. There's this sense that Jesus, the mission of the kingdom of God is so important that Mark, as he's writing his gospel, doesn't have time for salutation, doesn't have time for introduction. He gets right down to it. Is there anybody here in the room that doesn't like long conversations? You just like to get straight to the point. Mark's gospels for you. Read Mark's gospel. You read some of the other gospels like Matthew. Matthew takes his time, lists all the genealogy of Jesus. But Mark gets right to it. And when you look even a little bit before the text that we find ourselves in, one of the important things to remember about gospel writing is that oftentimes the way in which the gospel is arranged says as much to us as much as the passage actually says to us. So when I look at how this text is arranged, I look at these two passages in chapter 10, but I also take notice of what comes before it. If you're looking in your Bibles with me, you, you see where Jesus begins to talk about, let the little children come to me. Why is that important? Because we understand in that society at that time, children did not have a place of privilege. Children did not have a place of, of access. It is so drastically different than what you and I have right now. My kids seem to get any and everything that they want, but those days are over, kids. <laughs> Watching at home with their mom, they just got done having the flu and 
We treated them like lepers for a few days. I have to confess that in church. We yelled at them. We'd walk by unclean and we would continue to move. But we were just visiting Honey Lake. So if we need to send them for some counseling later on in their, in their teenage years, we can do that. But I, I want to, I want us to grab hold of this. J Jesus is telling his disciples, let the kids come to me. It's so, so drastically different from the time and the age. He begins to talk to them about his, his death. He lets them know that he's going to be leaving earth soon. The mission of the kingdom of God, it is going to be coming to fulfillment very, very soon. Talks about the rich young man. He begins to unfold all of these things. You can have all of the treasure. You can have all the access. But if you don't know how to steward it and do well with it, you're missing the message of the text. You think that the disciples would get that right, don't you? You think the disciples would be able to discern and perceive the way in which they were supposed to act, but Jesus asked them this question after he is kind of bullied by James and John. Don't you remember in the text, he says, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Am I the only person that was raised in a household where that wouldn't have gone over well? I could yell that across the house to my mom and dad and then leave out the back door quickly. And here James and John, so familiar with Jesus, so close in proximity to Jesus, that they're actually trying to manipulate their relationship to get a place of status and a place of power and a place that's going to give them ultimate authority in the group of their 12 disciples. They pull them off to the side. Hey, Jesus, do whatever we ask you. We'd actually like to have the seats to your right, to your left. We'd actually like to have the power and the prestige why don't you give us that? It's interesting the way that they try to play this out. When Jesus asks the question of them, what would you have me do for you? Do you understand that Jesus is asking a question that he actually already understands the right answer to? Do you understand that Jesus is not confused when he asks this question? Jesus knows precisely the right answer, knows precisely how they should respond. You and I may know this in kind of our work environments. We, you ever heard of appreciative inquiry? Or you lead people by questions. You ever ask questions to kind of draw people into a certain conversation or bring them to a place of awareness? This is what Jesus is doing. And the disciples fail royally. Their request of Jesus. Can you imagine if Jesus asked you, what would you have me do for you? Would your, would your request be to have certain seats? Come on, don't you remember being young? I couldn't have been the only person that played this game. Did you ever have this game where you'd go, oh, that's my car? Carpool, oh, that, oh, that's my car. And then you matured a little bit and you didn't necessarily care about the car you drove or, or, or you kind of elevated your game to like the Powerball game. I know it's church and y'all never heard of Powerball, but for a moment, indulge me. Have you ever played the Powerball game? You drive down, this is how the Powerball game goes if you don't know. You drive down the highway and on the billboard, you see some astronomical number. Powerball's, you know, 900 million. And you're like, oh, I think I'm gonna play the Powerball this weekend. Because winning 55 million isn't worth your time. I can't be bothered with 55 million, church, but 900 million gets my attention. Look to my wife and I say, you know what we would do with 900 million dollars for the glory of God? We would tithe it, we would give that 10%. Bet money, God, I'll give you 12% if you give me that 900 million. I'll tithe and offering on top of this, Jesus. Trust me. But then we start playing the game where we're like, oh, you know what I would do? I'd get this house. I'd go travel here. I would, I would do this and that. You begin to kind of dream and you begin to kind of plan. And then you know what we do? 
We forget to buy the ticket. <laughs> Have all that energy of thinking about what it might be, what it could be. But we actually don't live in a place where we put intentionality so when Jesus asked the question, what would you have me do? We might have practiced and pretend about power, Paul, or, or that's my car. Or we might have dreamed up an idea of how we would respond and answer that. Can I just say to you, church, I hope you've got a response. If Jesus ever comes into your house and asks you the question, what would you have me do for you? You see, because I, I, I live in a place and I realize that Jesus is actually asking that question, not just to you, not just to us, not just to the disciples then, but I can show you throughout the scriptures where God has been asking his people, what would you have me do for you? What do you want from me? Don't you remember Solomon in the Old Testament could have asked for anything? And he asked for wisdom. Give me wisdom so that I might be able to administrate your people and I can lead in a way that is pleasing to you. God asks his people over and over and he's asking us tonight, what would you have me do for you? And his disciples did it terribly wrong because sometimes you can have your sight and not be able to see a thing. The disciples can see brilliantly Jesus in full color. They could touch him. They could smell him. They knew what Jesus's laugh sounded like and they got it wrong. And yet Bartimaeus on the side of the road, as Jesus and his disciples are coming towards Jericho, the end of Jesus's ministry is winding down. And Bartimaeus can't see that it's Jesus, but he can hear that it's Jesus. And he begins to cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. A messianic exclamation, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And the disciples just a few moments earlier couldn't remember that Jesus said, let the little children, let the outcasts come to me. And they're telling Bartimaeus to shut his mouth. Be quiet. You're saying too much. Knock it off. You're a little too loud. And do you know what I love about Bartimaeus? And I hope that you and I can grab and attach this into our spiritual journeys. When they told him to be quiet, what did he do? He screamed all the more louder. I'm not super rebellious, but I got a little bit of rebellion in me. Anybody else in here like that? I'm not saved, saved. I'm just like barely saved. I, I love the fact that his desire to meet Jesus was greater than the opposition that he faced was greater than the pushback that was surrounding him, was greater than even his own situation. And he cries out all the more. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you come here? And he asked the question to the blind beggar that the disciples failed royally on, and he gets it perfect. He gets it perfectly. He says, I'd like to recover my sight. I've often wondered, because I have a little bit of a daft sense of humor, as you've probably picked up on just a couple moments we've been here together. I've often thought it was a little bit rude for Jesus to ask that question to Bartimaeus. Like Jesus, I know you, he's on the side of the road. He was yelling. He can't see. He had people bring you to him. What do you think he was going to say? I've often wondered, Jesus, why in the world would you ask a question? Jesus, that's kind of a dumb question. Why would you ask that? But if I look back in chapter 10 earlier on when the disciples who could see perfectly clearly ask, are asked the question and they get it wrong, I wonder if Jesus just wonders if this guy can see better than them. 
What would you have me do for you? He doesn't take revenge on those who might have been marginalizing him. He doesn't, he doesn't take his, his action towards maybe people who had pushed him out of the way from time to time. I know you're probably not vengeful in your heart. I know there's probably not moments in your life where you want to exact right where things have been put wrong. I was surprised that Bartimaeus doesn't respond out of that. He responds with a purity and from his heart, he says, I just want to be able to see. I just want to be able to see. And Jesus says, go ahead. Your faith has made you well. So this narrative in this text, I, I think for us, there's a variety of things we could extract from it and it can apply to our lives. But as we talk about our relationships and we talk about the way in which that we deal with one another and, and the way in which we engage people in, in life, I, I want you to hear this. The way in which you and I, the way in which you and I deal with ourself and our personal spirituality before the Lord will directly affect the way in which we deal in our relationships with one another. So I want us to look at this question and I want us to look at this narrative and there's four things tonight. I want you to write these down because I think that they'll, they'll help you in terms of how you relate to one another, how you relate to yourself. And, and I hope they'll be practical. I hope you'll write them down. And the first one would simply be this, write it down, motives matter. Your motives matter. Why you do things matters. But in order for us to look and examine our motives, we've gotta be able to create margin in our lives where we take time and we ask the simple question, why do I do the things that I do? Why do I feel this way? Why am I angling this way? Why am I operating under this value system? What are my motives? What's the why behind the what? So often we spend our lives being able to explain what we're doing, but very little energy being able to define why we do it. When leadership expert says it this, that if you have, if you have the why, you can, you can undergo any what. How many of you in your lives right now are feeling frustration because you've been so focused on the what, you never focused on why. You don't have a definition for the motivation of your heart. You're not spending time carving that out and looking at that. The second thing I'd love you to grab hold of is simply this tonight, and you see this in the text, that presence is always greater than power. Presence over power. In your life and your relationships and the way in which you deal with one another, remember that to have the presence to be with someone is greater than exacting strength over them. The disciples just wanted good seats. They wanted authority. They wanted power. They wanted prominence. And what we didn't read in the text is they did it in such a way that actually angered the other 10. They came to Jesus kind of off in the side real quiet voices. And then the other disciples on the side, the text kind of gives you this sort of picture that they picked up on what those two disciples were asking for. And they're like, you've got to be kidding me. They become indignant. They get enraged. They're upset. Why? Because these guys went from a place of presence together and they tried to make a power move to exalt themselves. Now hear me on this, you are gonna be working in environments where you're seeing this play out day in and day out. Where people will exchange relationships, they'll exchange integrity, they'll exchange history with you. 
just to be able to make a power move. Listen to me, as the people of God, we have to choose that presence is greater. The presence of God in us is greater than power, but also our presence in the workplace and our testimony in the workplace is greater than our ability to rise and ascend. Write this down, that your nearness to Jesus is demonstrated in the way in which you lead or keep others away from the mercy that they desperately desire. The way, yes ma'am, I will. Your nearness to Jesus is demonstrated in the way in which you lead or keep others away from mercy. You're either leading them to mercy or you're keeping them away from it. And I'm telling you the fruit of your life, the fruit of your relationship with Jesus is demonstrated by that. Do you bring people to mercy or do you keep them away from it? Are you trying to hold it for yourself and, and have a sense where you're doubled down and you're trying to inhale these spiritual riches but never breathing out the goodness of God unto others? Oftentimes, the things that you take in, if you don't breathe them out, it'll be the very thing that kills you. On one hand, the oxygen that fills my lungs gives me life, but if I never breathe it out, the thing that was life-giving is now a death sentence for me. How many of us in our spiritual journeys have gotten to a place that we've forgotten our role is to bring others to a place that they can encounter Jesus as he walks by? Listen, I've grown up in church and we're in a church right now where we'll say things like this. Oh, we, Jesus was in the room. I felt Jesus walk in the room tonight when they were singing. Are you getting in the way of someone else having a view of that Jesus walking in the room? Or are you posturing yourself and positioning yourself in such a way that not only can you see Jesus, but you are helping them connect to Jesus in that moment? Choose presence over power. The third thing I want you to grab hold of is, is simply this, that ambitions will, will damage your authenticity. Your ambition will damage your authenticity. Again, we see this playing out in the disciples, and I, I hate that I'm picking on James and John so much tonight because they were rather good disciples if you read the, the whole New Testament narrative. They're known as the sons of thunder. What a great, what a great nickname. Pastor Tim, could you refer to me as that next time? Just to try to go with the son of thunder. That'd be awesome. There's power. There was a, a nearness to, to Jesus. There was a, a way in which they lived their life that was filled with passion and zeal, but can I say to you, if you're not careful, don't confuse passion with ambition. Don't ever for a moment think that your passion and your zeal for Christ is the same thing as ambition. Ambition has a, a root word in the, in the Latin that simply means campaigning for oneself. See, ambition often gets us into places and positions where we are simply thinking about ourselves. We're trying to promote ourselves. We're trying to exalt ourselves. We're trying to make sure that we have the positions of power. Man, I don't care about the other 10 disciples. Let me make sure I got a good seat. See, oftentimes we get to this spot and it creeps in because we've never done the first thing that we talked about where we actually checked our motives. We've never allowed Jesus to examine our hearts and for us to be honest and, and real with ourselves that maybe my, my motives are wonky. Maybe they're all centered. Maybe they're not the thing that they need to be. Maybe I'm just going through the motion. Maybe I'm just sitting by the side of the road and everybody else is having a, a time, but I'm just disengaged. It's gotta be a place that we allow our, our ambition to dwindle. Let your ambition be choked out. 
question I'll ask you is, are you looking for ways to, to promote yourself? Or are you looking for ways that the cry for mercy around you can be heard? I remember years ago, not a popular worship artist, but great for maybe some of your private times of worship. Guy's name is Jason Upton. He wears no shoes, I think, when he leads worship, so it's kind of weird. It's always weird when people have like bear dogs in their lead in worship. It's always a, it's hard for me to get around that sometimes. But here's a song I'll never forget when I heard as years like 2007, and the song was called "Dying Star." And the whole premise behind the song was that that others can't see who Christ is because oftentimes we get in the way. That the, that the illuminating joy and love and mercy and grace of Christ oftentimes is overshadowed by our own desire to shine. I can ask you a, a tough question to consider tonight. Have you allowed your desire for position, prominence, notoriety? Have you allowed your ambition to override your authentic passion for Christ? Are you in a spot where you might be causing the light of Christ to be dimmed because you're in some sort of competition with it? James and John didn't want to be Jesus. They just wanted to sit real, real close. See, sometimes we don't need to be in the chair, but as long as we have proximity, we also get the ancillary benefits. See, James and John had already played this out. The coronation ceremony in heavenly realms sitting on Jesus's left and right. Man, of course, Jesus, you're going to get all the glory, but I don't mind if I steal just a little bit of it. I don't mind if I'm in the, the reflection of your glory. That's okay with me. Is there a spot in your life right now where the Lord wants to push on you and say, hey, wait a second. Hey, your ambition, your desire to campaign for yourself needs to diminish, needs to die. You're in the room tonight and you're, you're thinking about plotting moves at your job and you've been wrestling with this because you're wondering if you're not wondering you know that your integrity will have to actually take a hit in order for you to do the things that you know will end you up in a new position or a new pay level there's a quantifiable sacrifice that you have to make in order for you to have integrity I feel like the Lord just wants me to say this to you tonight you need to listen to this point is your ambition overshadowing your authentic pursuit of Jesus. Final point for us tonight, I want us to land here. It's simply this, don't confuse sight with vision. Don't confuse sight with vision. Bartimaeus couldn't see with his natural eyes, but with his spiritual eyes, he knew precisely what was going on. Your natural senses may be limited, but that doesn't mean that you cannot see the supernatural move of God that is happening in front of you. Don't, don't get caught in a moment where you're trying to answer the supernatural question of God, what do you want me to do with you and for you? In a natural response. Don't let your ego answer that question. 
Don't let selfish ambition answer that question. But answer it from that true place in your heart, that true ache, that true broken place where the Lord comes to you and he says, what would you have me do for you? Answer out of the spot where you cry for mercy. Where you say, God, relief, restore, make me whole. I believe tonight God desires to do that in your life. Don't, don't worry if you've gotten it wrong. Don't worry if you found seasons and moments in your life, maybe even in this past week, where you've been more like James and John than you were like blind Bartimaeus, because the beautiful thing is this, you and I are gonna get it wrong from time to time. But the powerful thing about Bartimaeus' story is he went from a blind person that couldn't see Jesus to a person that could see Jesus and then began to follow Jesus. What a beautiful progression. What a beautiful progression. He couldn't see, but then he could. And then he kept following the Lord. The Bible says he, he laid his cloak off. Depending on what scholar you'll read, some would say that that cloak was a garment that he was wearing, but other scholars really would look at the fact of the time and the place where this took place, that wearing a cloak at that time would be a little bit warm. And more often, the cloak was used as a gathering place for alms and the charity that would have been given. What I love to have is the picture of this story where Bartimaeus is there and his cloak is laid out and people have given and they've been kind to him. They've given him money. They've given him all the resources that he, that he has there and it's, it's in front of him. And when it says that he throws that off, he gets up. He doesn't care about those things because he knows there's something greater. What are you willing to let go of because you know there's something greater? Church, I want to ask you just in this moment, if you bow your eyes, bow your head, close your eyes. Best you can, shut yourself away. I was praying for you this afternoon and I really felt like I was just simply supposed to ask a question and then get out of the way. Where do you need the mercy of God? Where's that place in your life right now where you just, you feel like Bartimaeus and you're on the side of the road and you're crying out to the top of your lungs, have mercy on me, Jesus. Have mercy on me. Where's the point in your life right now where you'd say, I can't, I can't go any further. I can't take any more. I have to have some relief. Some of you, it's a financial burden. There's a financial situation that you're dealing with seems daunting, it seems overwhelming, anxiety is creeping in, and you're at a place right now where you, li you literally, Jesus, have mercy. If that's you and you're at a place where you'd say, I've got, I've got to have, I've got to have Jesus intervene right here, right now. I need the mercy of God. I need the ever-loving and everlasting kindness of Jesus. If that's you, I want you to stand to your feet right now. You'd say, I need mercy. I need mercy. Maybe it's not a financial situation. Maybe it's a situation on your job. It's a situation in your, your work environment. You'd say, Jesus, I need you to have mercy. I need some sense of relief. I, I need some sense of intervention. If it's in your family right now, you need mercy. You've got a, a relationship tension point between a husband and a wife. 
You say, we've got to have mercy. I need mercy to intervene, or I don't know if this relationship can go any further. You don't need power. You need the presence of Christ. And I believe the Holy Spirit is here to administer that mercy to you. If you have a physical need, you'd say, Jesus, I need mercy. His cry was not for healing. His cry was for mercy. And he knew that Jesus' mercy would be demonstrated in making him whole. Do you have a physical need? And tonight you'd say, have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy. As we stand here in the presence of God, as the band begins to play, as we begin to move in a moment of reflection, a moment of simply just asking the Lord. I'm going to simply invite you just to pray that prayer of, of blind Bartimaeus, just simply Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. It's a simple prayer, but it's one that's rich with biblical history. It's one that's rich with potency and power because we recognize who we are without Christ and who we can be with Christ. Why don't you just say that Lord have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. It's almost the spiritual equivalent of just yelling, uncle. I can't go anymore, God. I can't do anything else. I need you to intervene. Tonight, God, we stand here. We cry for mercy. And we know that you are the only one that can make a way where there seems to be no way move in the life of your people. Come near, God, and do what only you can do, Jesus. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. For more information about Celebration Church or to get in touch with us, please visit celebration.org.